The Guardian. Have you always wanted to write a novel, a history, a short story, your epitaph? Want to know how successful authors do it? It's all in a new Guardian book. I'll tell you more at the end of this podcast. Hi, I'm Alexis Petridis. This is Music Weekly from The Guardian. Coming up, John Taylor of Duran Duran, Lucy Rose, not of Duran Duran, Singles Club, and our special guest in the studio, Errol Olkin. We've been away over the summer, done a couple of specials, you might have heard them, but we're back. I'm back with me in the studio. Kieran Yates is back as well. Hello. How are you doing? I'm fine. Excellent. Also joining us in the studio today, I'm proud to say we have producer, DJ, label boss and all-round charming fellow Errol Olkin. Thank you very much for coming in, Errol. Hello. Um, what have you been up to? You look quite knackered. If you don't, I mean, I look knackered too. I mean, if you don't mind my saying so, you look, look like you've had... I'm actually labor. not very well today. I've, uh, I've oh. woke up with a bit of a sore throat, so oh, no. that might be it. Uh, oh, right, okay, right. Mm. But it's not as a result of a, no. a hectic DJing schedule, is it? Um, well, a little bit, but also a lot of, a lot of studio work. And actually, yeah, a lot of, a lot of gigs, I'm afraid. Really? So, I yeah. was looking on your website, and mm-hmm. you were playing literally all over the world in yeah. the next sort of few months. It's like Russia, you're going to uh, Australia at one That's point. That's right, yeah. All over the UK, mm-hmm. France... It's just been a non-stop. Is that non-stop sort of is is the sort of international appeal of what you do that's reflected in those dates? Is that a more recent thing? I mean, you've been very well known in Britain for a long time since the days of trash. Mm. Is, is that sort of more widespread thing? Is that more recent? It, well, I've been quite busy abroad for the last um, since about two thousand one, I think, mm. and it's just ongoing. Mm-hmm. You know, every week, Excellent. which I kind of do really like. Mm-hmm. Even though it's tiring. So your uh, current release, I suppose, mm-hmm. is another Bugged Out mix, which has just come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, two CD set, one of sort of club tracks, one of home listening. I think you could divide yeah. it that way. It says in the bottom, recorded live. Yeah. I know it's in the sleep. What do you mean by that and why is that important? Recorded live meant that I didn't sit at a computer and put the tracks together, which is what I have done in the past and I don't have a problem with. But I have always felt that my best DJ mixes have always been the ones were, that were recorded into my main disc player. Back when I used to uh, plug it into the back of the desk when I used to play gigs. Was this with, were you playing with vinyl then? Were you playing with CD? Vinyl, CD, yeah. Right. Whatever, yeah, whatever it took, really. But uh, I just felt that I kind of wanted to get that spontaneity mm-hmm. into it mm-hmm. rather than something that I could kind of keep going back and tidying up. Yeah. You know, or be too conscious about. Yeah, I, I just always preferred those mixes mm-hmm. and... I kind of gave myself the challenge of, you know, picking the records, putting them in an order that I felt was going to work, and then having a few goes, just recording them actually into a computer. But Right, but, but in real but time. In real time, yeah, exactly, yeah. I just wanted to capture the whole thing that you get when a record is kind of fading up a little bit too urgently. It kind of gives everything a little push, you know, mm-hmm. and if, if you hear like a beat slightly behind getting pulled back in, or mm-hmm. all those little kind of things just... Kind of miss them, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, for me it just felt a little bit more interesting and yeah, spontaneous. First mix album you did for Bugged Out. Mm. I don't know how you feel about it, but it is seen as a kind of defining moment within the sort of that really caught the zeitgeist of electro house and that particular okay. moment in time. 
How would you say that your style has changed? Your style of DJing, the kind of music you play has changed in the years since then? It's changed quite a few times actually since then, deliberately mm -hmm. and, and consciously, you know, because um, with dance music just seems to be moving even faster than it was back then. The difference between the two records is that the first one in 2004, I think it was 2005, was really a collection of a lot of current productions, mm. you know, so there was records from close friends of mine like Soax and you know, Justice and mm -hmm. Sebastian. And uh, at the same time, things that were happening, I think like labels like Get Physical and, and Compact. But with this one, I kind of felt that because everything is moving so fast. Just, I mean, it didn't really matter when a record was made. Right. Just as long as it, it sounded exciting at that point. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why, because there's, there's like that Amin Peck record, I think it's from 1982. Yeah, there's like a variety of records from up to 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't really want to, base it on what's happening right now because sure. I don't really feel that there is that much happening right now that I truly would want to stand by. You know There's I mean? certainly not a defining style to no. it in the sense that you could say of the first one there is kind of a defining, you know what I mean, it's quite sort of there was, maximalist yeah. and all this sort of words. Yeah, kind of exactly. I mean, at that point I was, even though I'd kind of had a claim around that time, I still felt like a slight outsider to mm -hmm. dance music, which is what I've always kind of always felt to a degree but with the new one it was just finding great records doesn't really matter when they're made because you know even if you base something that's unreleased mm -hmm. at this moment as soon as it is released it's there for everybody <laughs> so. yeah. one of the tracks I love on it for anybody who doesn't know these bugged out albums they're split into two and one is a clubby side and one is more for home listening or whatever mm. is the track by Space Lady yeah it's on there where did you dig that up I've never yeah, Space heard Lady Okay, so she is a, for anyone who doesn't know, Space Lady is a busker from San Francisco and around the early 90s she used to sell her cassettes when she was busking. Around 2006, 2007 I had this huge obsession with outsider music and strange recordings from across the ages and around the world and there was a really good blog called 365 Project, I think. Yes, called, that posted know? something every day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was following that, and I think they put a Space Lady thing on there once, and I just searched for more and more. And mm -hmm. when I heard when I heard her version of Major Atomic, there was just something about me, something about it, which which really struck a chord with me. It's it's an amazing recording. It's a know. sort of reinterpretation, okay, so yeah. the, of, the, of the David Bowie kind of Major Tom myth. <laughs> yeah, it's just so crudely recorded, you know, but it's perfect in for what it absolutely what it does. You know, it's kind of what I'm uh, obsessed with in in records you know like really? the, the purpose that it has a purpose to exist or in that sense I mean, you record as an artist quite sporadically, or you release stuff pretty sporadically. I mean, you yeah. do a lot of re-edits and things like that as well. But actually, stuff that comes out with the name Errol Olkin on it, to drop mm. by you, A, it doesn't happen that often. No. Um, and B, it's almost all, it's, I think I'm right saying it's always been in collaboration with somebody else. Yeah, I think so. I think Why is it that? It has, because I am I'm my worst, own worst enemy, I'm afraid, when it comes to... Um, decisions really yeah you'd just be there forever you wouldn't we wouldn't complete anything yeah right now I've, I've got a whole series of folders on my on my desktop at my studio computer but broken down into a series of releases and um 
and I just gotta kind of get them to the point where I feel that they're they're good enough to put out. It's the problem with being a producer as, as well. You know, you kind of do. Do you need something else to spark off? Is that the thing? I mean, we were talking before about the difference between a producer and an artist, a good producer yeah. and a good artist. If somebody brings the idea to an idea yeah. to you, and that's what sets you in motion, you go, you should do, you must do, you can do this, you can do yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, I tend to work on my own. That's the thing. So I need to be all those things. Mm -hmm. And that's sometimes the problem. When I'm in collaboration with people, even the very fact that you have someone else there to hit the record button whilst you're setting up loads of things or something <laughs> yeah. is, is a great benefit. But when you're kind of doing all that kind of stuff, it's such a, it can be sometimes a really slow process. Mm -hmm. you know? My favourite of your collaborations, I think, is Beyond the Wizard's Sleeve, which is oh, set right. up, it started again. I thought it yeah. was over and you, no, you, you, you're back, back, back. Well, yeah, I mean, what happened was we had a bit of a break because I had this other project which took a while. Basically, I kind of found all, like, a load of music and, and there's so much stuff that just needed to be kind of fine-tuned, really. I listened back to it, I really liked it, and Richard really liked it as well. couple of tracks at a time ready that we're happy with you know just to kind of put them back out there is that is that the way you're going to work rather than do an album um i think for the time being only because we're both so busy mm. you know god if, if only i could kind of just sit here and just reel off all the different things that are happening right now it might make more sense to <laughs> sure, whoever's sure. listening to this but i just need like about three of me working in each <laughs> studio and also Richard's got the, uh, the, the frankly incredible sending Lewis Psychedelic Festival to organise. And that does take time. I, I can imagine nice. it does. It's, it's the, I don't know if anybody, if, if our listeners know Lewis, which is a it's very pretty, it's where Richard lives, yeah, isn't it? It's a very yeah, beautiful lovely. town about half an hour away from Brighton. Um, mm -hmm. The least likely place in Britain to host a psychedelic festival, as <laughs> said. Um, but they do have that incredible fireworks display every, every they year do. as well, don't they? And uh, I believe Arthur Brown. He of the crazy world is, re is resident in Lewis, isn't he, yeah. as well? Yeah. I Providing that gets... sort of psychedelic and fire link between the yeah, two. Yeah, it's like the, it's like kind of tailor-made for him, really, wasn't it? That <laughs> Let's talk a little bit, um, before we move on to, to do Singles Club, about uh, your label, Fantasy. Okay, thanks. Um, what sort of ethos behind that? It began as a singles club, really. I was coming across a lot of music that I loved, that I just wanted to put out, mm -hmm. you know, so we would just, we would put a single out, and that would be it, per mm -hmm. artist. Mm -hmm. And it didn't really think of anything beyond that. And it wasn't until we until we come across Conor Muckerson right. that we decided to actually do an album, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and do it all properly in that way. And from doing that, it's inspired to take it even further. So there's other artists which we have signed and others that are in the process of signing to do the same kind of thing. And, and, and that's to work with them at every every creative level that they need us to help with or be involved with. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say help, really. It makes no, no, but I understand, what, I do but, understand yeah. what you're saying. At the, at the risk of sounding like a wanker off Dragon's Den, <laughs> um, is, is setting up a, a, an independent label, which is what yeah. you've done, is yeah. that commercially, is that sort of viable commercially thing to do in this day? Because you, be, um, you would be led to believe not. Yeah, I mean, I make my money from DJing. Sure. I don't make money from fantasy, but, I mean, it is sustainable, it's continually built mm. and we do sell records and we sell records I feel because they're good records and things like vinyl where mm. people say are selling less and less each year 
I mean, I don't know if, if this is common knowledge, but you know, I mean, if you sell three hundred records mm-hmm. now, you're doing really well. Three hundred vinyl, like twelve inches. You're yeah, talking about. yeah, you're doing really well. But we do we do five hundred minimum of them, and the, the lemonade twelve inch that we did. Mm-hmm. We sold 2,500 in, in two days. And we could, the distributor came back and told us we could have sold between seven and 10,000. That's amazing. Until I, yeah. For the benefit of, of, of listeners, I, am, so I was making sort of WTF faces throughout that. <laughs> a, because 300 yeah. 12 inch singles is considered a good sale. That's, 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 yeah, that's, how, that's how it is right now. But there's got to be more than 300 people who want to buy a record mm. out there. But, you know, you just kind of got to just get their attention. Well, clearly there is more because you're selling, you know, you sell yeah, like sell, a lot more. Yeah. I mean, if you're making just something that doesn't have an allure to it, to mm. a degree, just hoping that it's going to sell to someone who wants to own a slab of vinyl, then maybe that might not be the way of going about it. Mm-hmm. Vinyl is just such a, such a fantastic medium. Do you still use it when you DJ? Um, I buy it every week. Right. I don't take it out with me to DJ. Sure. I have. Nobody does. I mean, this is. Uh, I was uh, again, you know, betraying my uh, my roots as a sort of nineties clubber. I remember talking to Norman Cook, and this was uh, quite a long time ago, mm. easily five six years ago. And he said, "I'm just about the only DJ I know that even bothers to bring yeah. records." But he doesn't anymore. Either. No, he doesn't anymore either. No, no, no. <laughs> so literally, nobody does, right? Well, no, no, no. A lot of DJs actually do. A lot of guys playing out deep house. I mean, it's mm-hmm. kind of you know you have to play off vinyl I think it's it's yeah it's kind of a bit of a yeah. oh that's weird you don't play vinyl it's like a <laughs> like oh no really it's a bit sort of crap you know it's a little it's bit like, crap yeah right, okay brilliant um, but that's i mean that's great but i mean to for me personally i stopped playing vinyl for two reasons well three reasons one i was having a cart it all around the world and it was getting pretty sure. heavy two i was getting to gigs and decks weren't being set up properly mm-hmm. So you'd turn up and there would be a couple of CD players, a couple of vinyl players, and then the stylus would be worn out on the vinyl or the earthing wasn't set up right. Right. And people just kind of stopped taking care of it. Mm -hmm. And three, in my eyes, something else came along, which I felt was better for me personally Mm -hmm. in how I can kind of interact with my music collection when I'm DJing. Mm -hmm. You know, I use this thing called Recordbox, which is uh, literally a a USB key. Right. I turn up to the gig. I put it into the machine. Mm-hmm. I usually have four machines, and then they're all linked together. Right. And I have things like all my cue points and edit points on each track if mm-hmm. I'm wanting to do them, so I can re-edit tracks live. Oh, brilliant! For me, it's just a really interesting and exciting way to to DJ, and it keeps me interested. Okay, well, brilliant. Thank you very much. Well, let's let let us move on to Singles Club. Everybody brings in a new track that they like and presents it for consideration to the others. I think we should start guests first, special okay. guests first. Um, we should start with Errol's choice. That is Cross-Eyed Girl by Dyslexics, uh, spelled in a way that I can't even begin to spell out. <laughs> Errol, that's your choice. Tell us a bit about Dyslexics. Okay, Tell dys- us a bit about that track. Dyslexics used to also be called 10, the number 10, mm-hmm. L-E-X-6. And then they kind of disappeared. But one member in Dyslexics used to be in Jess and Crab. Do you remember right. them? No. Nope. They used to make French House. Oh, okay. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've been a big fan of Jess and Crab for a long time. And... Um, 
And then when I heard that one of them was in this kind of weird post-punk band, mm. I was a bit surprised. And then I checked out the records back in 2006. I really liked them and invited them over for a gig. And then nothing happened for years and years. And then this kind of came into my inbox about a couple of weeks ago. And I love it. I've just what, what, what is it you like about it? I like the production on it, even though it, it sounds like a bit like kind of the slits or something. Mm, like yeah, that. it does. But, but like produced like in it. a almost like how a dance record would be produced. And I love the fact that every sound in it is is an organic sound rather than a, a, a drum machine or mm -hmm. anything like that. So I think just the kind of marriage between the two styles I, I'm a fan of and the energy of it. And also, I don't really hear that much alternative music that still sounds a little bit disheveled is that word? <laughs> I think what, what, what I liked about it is it seems to be kind of unconsciously almost a sort of bridge between club music and guitar music and it doesn't sound like somebody set out and go I will meld you know the sounds yeah. of club music and guitar music together which is invariably yields awful results if anybody does that and mm. this doesn't this feels like a quite an organic record yeah. that works in both ways you could dance to it you could listen to it at home yeah i mean another band that i really like who are doing a simple i mean it's almost like the same kind of um variables as as like what factory floor are doing at the moment and mm. I, they're a group that are really kind of truly interesting yeah they're a magnificent i think factory floor are absolutely magnificent yeah band. i mean i kind of just want more of that well there's a sort of edge and a darkness to I'm mean, particularly what Factory Floor are doing I think yeah. that's sort of lacking elsewhere we had um, Chris and Cozy from Throbbing Gristle on yeah. the podcast a while back and Chris was saying he really felt that, that Factory Floor had sort of in some ways taken on Throbbing Gristle's mantle a bit which yeah. is you know high praise indeed I think really yeah have you seen them live no it's, it's great is it very loud <laughs> yeah that's kind of what you want oh, of course, of course. <laughs> going back to uh, dyslexics Kieran your thoughts please um, yeah I think sort of going back to what you were saying it's probably the most palatable post-punk uh, track that I've, I would have heard and listened to because I listened to the whole EP the track that's next is called Jinx on Him which is a lot more angry and kind of urgent and, and that was kind of I mean, they call themselves Spazcore, kind of, on yes, the website. Yes, I, didn't so, actually, I didn't actually see that. And so, yes. And it, so did, it did say Spazcore, didn't it? It I, did. I, I might want to think about and it. And I thought, mm, okay. It's but a then little I, bit hint of Ricky Gervais about I it. Could, it else. I could hear it more, kind of, you know, elsewhere <laughs> on the EP. But this was, yeah, like you said, it had a lot more kind of the dance inflections. And, yeah, it, it sounded a lot more, well, less offensive. But, um, yeah, this was uh, kind of less angry than that, I think. And, yeah, you sounded like you could dance to it. I felt like that sort of bass line was a little bit delighty, you know. That interesting. Cool yeah, it's, and I it's, was got, like, oh. it's got a bounce. It's got a nice bounce to it, it? has. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, th that's out now, is it? I mean, certainly you can sure. stream it right now from, yeah, from Spin Magazine. Another link I was sent was to the track to it on Amazon where it seems to be downloadable or whatever. Oh, right, okay. So that's out now. Let's move on and listen to Kieran's Choice. Is uh, holding you tight by Sure Thing, Karen. Your choice. You brought in. It sounds to me like a record that could have come out on West End, 
or a label of that ilk in 1982. Exactly. It's got a hint of freestyle about it. Um, obviously, I really like it. Regular listeners of the pod will know this is the kind of thing that's right on my street. Um, I thought we'd start the new season with something that you'd like. That I'd like. Because yeah. the rest of the season is going to consist of wrestler can't bear. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit. It's a Bristolian collective. It is. Kind of what you might call the new wave, even though most of them are established in their own right. And it's kind of featuring Joker and DJ Die and Christoph and Clevy, DJ Die DJ and uh, Chloe Lang thing. on vocals. This is actually out. Katie Lang, Chloe oh, Lang, Chloe, right. which yeah, and I just think that that's something really nice to champion and get behind because obviously Bristol has this huge legacy of kind of trip hop and bass culture, and I think it's it's very difficult when you're always producing music with that kind of legacy foreshadowing the things that you do. Yeah, and I quite like this. I quite liked how they're using all those tropes of. Time's gone past. Kind of, yeah, hysterical. talk boxes, uh, kind of synth heavy and, you know, kind of all that sort of layering, but being quite forward looking as well. Why do you think, I'm, I'm going to take issue with you, why do you think that record's forward looking? Because to me, I mean, you know, I love it, I'm not, don't get me wrong, it sounds like a very, very well executed pastiche of a record from 1983. Okay, I, do, I just think that it fits in very well with something that you would hear when you would go out now, kind of. It within maybe a house mix or within sort of various bass heavy mixes. Okay. If I heard that in a club, I wouldn't think that that was completely out of sync or I wouldn't think that was, you know, that, that was really weird to hear. I think that that was kind of in line with I'm going to take your word for it because you, you go to clubs and I don't. Uh, Errol, you go <laughs> to a lot of clubs as well. Do, um, yeah. what, what, what did you make of that? Yeah, I liked it. I think, I think it's really interesting that there's a lot of people from bass music over the last year or so that have kind of gone into just areas that you probably wouldn't have envisaged from a couple of years back and I think that's great because I, I like the idea of people who, who may be known or who may have applied their trade in, in one sound mm-hmm. like attempting to do something else because I sometimes think some of the more interesting things are discovered that way the fact that those people are behind it is to me like more interesting than just like hearing the track yeah. on its own yeah. in, in, in that sense you know what I mean? it kind so of lends kind the of... idea that it's probably more than more of a passion project than kind of yeah. you might think that like coming together and being like we really love funk and we really love all and these kind of sounds there's a bit of a cross generational thing going on there because mm. DJ Die mm-hmm. is of you know with all due I'm not saying he's old or anything like that but I mean he's of a different era I mean he was yeah. part of Ronnie Size represent sort of crew mm-hmm. um, yeah. back in the day so he's obviously a different era to Joker Yep. Who yeah. looks about exactly eight? <laughs> Whenever I see a picture of Joker, it's incredibly young. Would you play that out? Is that something that would fit with what you do? That I mean, I do sometimes play records of that sound out when I'm playing like more kind of disco sets. And I mean, there's a lot of people actually. A lot of other. I mean, I shouldn't say who they are because they've kind of played me music privately. Said, mm-hmm. "Oh, what do you think of that?" But very, very big people involved in dubstep or bass music who are kind of making pretty amazing like disco records mm. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think that's it's interesting well, it's isn't it because it seems to have gone because a while back everything Kieran things. brought in from the bass scene sounded first initially they sounded like old two-step garage records or old speed mm. garage records then they started to sound like really early house records you know and it's like yeah. they're going to end up making something that sounds like I don't know like yeah. a, there was a big sound clash 50s event. R&B or something <laughs> that'd be good there was a big sound clash event earlier in the year with Scream and Crystal Clear and it was basically like a disco off yeah. and they played kind of various glittery disco sounding bass records and I think since then there's been kind of little trickles but actually I was at the Bugged Out presents Night Slugs events in May mm-hmm. and you know that was kind of like Iconica and Jam City and kind of all the Night Slugs crew and you would get kind of these sort of you know these kind of sounds slipping through now and again and I'd be like you know really kind of overlayered funk 
synths coming yeah. through and you'd be like, yeah, well, this, you know, and so this seems like quite a seamless response to all of that. It doesn't seem like it's really out of the ordinary. It seems like something you would hear. Is, it, is this out now? Is this a fact, or is it as uh, with everything? It's every- out next month on Gutter Funk, which is Digitized label. Wonderful, wonderful. Right, we should move on. The uh, final track this week's Singles Club is My Choice. Is um, C by Roosevelt. Um, it's a new or a forthcoming, I think it's out next month, uh, release on uh, Greco Roman, a label perhaps best known for producing Joe Goddard's Monster Club hit of last year, Gabriel. I just got sent this. It, it's, I say the same thing, or you know, almost every time I bring a track into Singles Club, this turned up in my pile of stuff that I got sent. And I put it on, I thought, this is a really interesting record that seems to exist in a space between. Various different genres. It's sort of Balearic. It's sort of a band, but it's not like a, a big pop song, but it's got a pop feel to it. But it's got a club feel to it as well. I just thought it was a really interesting, different record. So it's quite commercial. And so there's a little single, three-minute single edit of it. And you sort of think, I, I could sort of imagine this taking off in a world where everything in the charts didn't sound like it was produced by Calvin Harris. Um, <laughs> the lovely parallel universe. I had it on. Late summer sunshine was coming in through the windows. I thought this is this is the perfect soundtrack to it. It's really it's really perking me up, and I need perking up at the moment. I'm going to throw this open to the floor, Kieran. We'll go to you first. Yes, I, I, yeah, I think that that's quite a nice thing because I think so often when you have sounds like this that are a little bit kind of on the border of chill wave and sounding Balearic, and then mm. it can all sound a little bit samey, and you can kind of oh, wash God, over yes. you, yeah. and you can kind of hear track after track, and none of them will really stick out. But for me. Considering it had all of that stuff going on, it's quite slow moving. It, it it really did stand out, and I gave it a couple of listens. Good, I'm it, pleased to hear yeah, it. Yeah, so but usually, like, I'll hear this over again, and I don't get anything new from it. You mm, know what I mean? Sure, but sure. I gave it a couple of listens, and I was kind of getting other things. It didn't sound like something you would just hear winding down on a boat party in the Mediterranean or whatever. You know, it wasn't that kind of thing. Right. Are people kind of ignoring it? It was, yeah, it kind of stood out, and it, that's what I liked. It's interesting it. you say chill because I hadn't thought of that. And this is, I think, testament to why I think this record is original and good. Right. Um, is that I, if I hear another chillwave record, I'm going to go <laughs> fucking spare. I mean, I, I, you know, as I often say on this programme, I'm a man of enormously advanced years. I remember kind of shoegazing the first time out. And there just came a point where I'm not going to say whose album it was. I put it on. It's like if I hear another sodding record that sounds like basically Fleetwood Mac on a badly tuned radio, I'm going to go completely <laughs> spare. I cannot bear here. You know, and I, I speak as someone who, you know, big fan of Washed Out when they yeah. first came. But, you know, it's like got enough of that music. And it never occurred to me that this would be thought of as chill wavy. So yeah. it clearly is okay. sui generis in that sense, to use yeah. a pretentious term. Yes. Um, Errol. I actually picked up slightly on the chillway thing, but I, I agree with you entirely what you said. But this record does have a spark, mm. which is which is far brighter than than its kind of sound yeah. as such. And that's the thing that pulled me into it. 
I, th- I think it's a record that many people, when they hear it, are just going to like it. There's something really likeable about it. It reminds me of a record which I was actually going to bring, but you might have heard it. It's um, a track by Dara called Scribble Me This. No. Which you should check out. I'm I think you're going to really like it. It's actually a, a pitched down riff from Little Bird or Little Something by Annie Lennox. Right. Hang on, I've heard. I've not heard this track, but I've heard people talking about it. Exactly. Yes, it is a little bit right. by Annie Lennox, isn't it? And, yes, right. But this is the thing: the vocal. Everyone was like, "Yeah, the vocal's so weird and amazing." But it's actually, uh, it's actually a little dragon pitched down. Really? Yeah. So it's basically a mashup. It's just two. It tracks is a mashup. That's the thing. And I was like, <laughs> I didn't want to come in and bring a, a mashup to me. <laughs> <laughs> You're still doing this. <laughs> but, um, 2012. Nothing. <laughs> what year is it? Has he not moved on at all? <laughs> yeah, all that stuff about moving. Must have played You've probably not heard of them. It's an amazing idea. Coming back around again, but the thing is, this whatever it is, it like sounds like a hit to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and and a similar quality in this in this Roosevelt track. It it's got something magical in inside of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really like Greco Roman as well. I think yeah. I think they, they kind of put out a lot of really interesting bits and bobs yeah i really liked it I'm, I'm just i'm just slightly confused as to why i haven't heard this before i can't i can't help it if i'm ahead of the curve man. Just ahead <laughs> of me, man. <laughs> um no i i also thought the other thing that's sort of interesting so, so i'd actually like to hear more by that i wouldn't mind hearing an album by this band which is yeah. you know because it seemed like there was a lot of possibilities open which often you hear a dance track and you think or a club track or whatever, mm. that's a track in its own right and that exists and that's what it is and, you know, the next record might be awful or da 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 mm. I thought there was a little bit more to it than that. Anyway, that is out, I think, uh, next month on Greco-Roman. Uh, there is SoundCloud of it knocking about. You can find it on SoundCloud if you want to hear it now. And that's Singles Club. Duran Duran's John Taylor needs no introduction other than to note that he's about to release his uh, autobiography, In the Pleasure Groove, already described by one tabloid as a haze of sex and drugs, which details Duran Duran's glory days and uh, Taylor's own descent into uh, addiction and a kind of madness. I was caught in a vortex of fear, arrogance, loneliness and extraordinary popularity, he writes. Don't you just hate it when that happens? We dispatched Michael Hand to talk to him, and he started by asking John Taylor whether he'd ever considered another career. By the time I was out of school, no, I don't think there was anything else I could have done. I mean, I've always liked, I've always liked the graphic arts. I did all the early, early band logos, and I went to art college with a view to, you know, doing a degree in, in graphics, but I, did, I just didn't make it that far. It was where, doing the foundation course, that was where I met Stephen Duffy, and that's where... My end of course show, that was where I put the first Duran demo tape out on the table. I mean, I think at the end of the 70s in Britain, there'd just been so much going on. There were so many bands, you know, the, the whole the punk rock revolution, you know, the, there'd just been so many bands, so many young artists that had gotten to make a go of it. Just didn't seem unrealistic. And at this point, there was, you know, I was with Nick and he was as ambitious as I was. I just needed the time to focus. And, uh, and the other great, you know, music movement for me was the glam thing. And artists like David Bowie, Roxy Music on, to- on, on, on British TV for the first time. I mean, I, that was my moon landing because, you know, when I saw those guys, I thought that's what I want to look like. That's what, you know, that's what I want to wear. And that's what I want to do. I mean, I, there was no uh, musical instruments in my family. They weren't, they weren't sophisticated in that. You know, nobody played an instrument. But it was, it was growing inside me. You know, and then four years later, I suppose, the, the Sex Pistols came along. And then the less you knew, the better equipped you were to 
to be relevant. And uh, did Glam and Punk, did they help with the reinventing Definitely. of yourself from Nigel Taylor, the specky teenager? Yeah, to Johnny to, Rocker. To, to, yeah, there you <laughs> go. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, they were both very image-oriented musical movements. When you look at sort of musical society, it feels like in the last 10, 15 years, everybody's moved towards the centre in a way. But there was, some, there was a lot of really ultra stuff going on um, and it was happening in plain view I mean it was on British TV every week but it was it was a uniqueness you know everybody you had to have a sound and you had to have a look that made you stand out so by the time we had a blueprint for our own band we knew it you know we didn't want it to look or sound like anything else one of the most striking things in the book is the gap between how Duran Duran perceived themselves when the group started as an English art rock group in the tradition of Roxy and how the rest of the world perceived you fairly quickly yeah. as, as teeny bop heartthrobs. Was that a difficult thing to come to terms with at first? Well, I think the, the, the first thing that really threw me was the, the clever rock press, I would say, like the NME, which had been, you know, that was my Bible as a kid. And the NME hated Duran right off, right off the start. They gave us some horrible reviews. I was so disappointed about that. I mean, it was like I, I didn't understand. I thought they were my friends. <laughs> What then sort of fell into the into the vacuum was we started getting all of this teen press. Actually, it was I think the the first single came out in February, you know, and it, it made a dent. But then, sort of looking for other ways to get attention, we started doing these pinup photographs. We went back on the road when Girls on Film came out, when the album came out in June, and it all went off. Beware the pin-up photos. I mean, it was all good, actually. Well, it's fascinating that one, th- one anecdote you tell about how that almost being accidental, you saying to your, your press manager at the time, oh, is Jackie still publishing? Right. Said, yeah, go on, call the editor then if yeah. that's what you yeah. want. And, of course, that became your core. Yeah, and I think, you know, and I, I think the naivete of that is, is, is what's charming about it because the kind of success Duran had, I mean, people, you know, people are always trying to understand these things and they're like, well, it's... Uh, they're being manipulated, aren't they? And we and we, and, and we never were. It, it wasn't not that kind of a. We were nobody's creation but our own. I did want to look at the first few years because it was just so, it was so mad. And, and 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 I couldn't believe how much work we did. I mean, I couldn't believe. I mean, eighty one, eighty two, eighty three. We were touring Britain two, three times a year, just Britain, and 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 working the globe and at the same the day, time. Those were the days when a tour of Britain was 25 dates as well, yeah. not four arenas, Yeah, and it? an album every year. Mm-hmm. And, those, and, and, and pretty quickly, the bar was set very high. And whereas we'd started out writing songs, you know, for fun, you know, for fun and profit, you know, I mean, you know, everybody wants to be successful. But then there was fairly immediate pressure to write for number ones. And it wasn't that we didn't rise to the challenge, but it was a challenge. You were very keen on the attention to detail as well, with the posters, the colour schemes. I, I love the, the story about Claret and Blue being adopted for gigs because yeah. you were playing at uh, Villa Park. And you talk in the book about some of the early military look coming from your love of airfix modelling as a kid. Did you all think the same way about the importance of that stuff? Well, what was amazing, I think, when once we were together... Simon was the last guy to join, and and when we'd already got the the architecture of the sound together, Simon came came down one day, and we just played him, you know, a couple of the songs that the four of us had been working on, and we'd been bu- building this sound, you know, he, he he listened to, 
this one piece we played it a couple of times he got a notebook with him with some poetry lyric ideas and he walked up to the mic and just started singing and that was it there was nothing else to to do and I think for the next three or four years we never considered direction either in terms of the way that we sounded or the way that we looked we just fell in step with each other you know, there was an understanding. We had a fantastic, it was a fantastic chemistry because there was an understanding, okay, well, Nick's probably the, the person to listen to on this, on this subject. Andy is on this. John is on this. Everybody had, a, had, had strengths. A lot of rock autobiographies follow a trajectory of early excitement <laughs> through disillusionment to redemption. In yours, this doesn't disappoint in that well, sense. But in yours, the disillusionment seems to strike fairly quickly. Even by you know, 81, 82, you're obviously feeling the pressure. Yeah. Life is not just a bowl of cherries, despite, you know, the hit records and everything. Was that the nature of your personality or a function of Duran's huge success coming so quickly? Well, I, I think it was a function of my personality. And I, I tried to communicate that in the book because, you know, I had a lot of love growing up. I had a lot of very down-to-earth support from, a, from a, a wonderful family. But I really did go off the rails very quickly. I'm just not sure, you know, whether it's just like Catholic upbringing just doesn't quite make it or whether you know I was the designated pinup and whether that put me under pressure or I just didn't have the off switch installed in the same way as everybody else seemed to have I don't know whether I've uh, you know overemphasized that within the book because obviously there were some fantastic times I mean the fantasy for me I remember seeing films of the Beatles when I was very little and as an only child thinking wow I want three brothers that I can you know, travel around and go to all these exotic places, making music and having fun. We did have a lot of fun. But I think in putting the book together, because <laughs> that was the arc that, I was, that I, was, I was really going for, and I did need to put the darkness in. And what's interesting, I mean, you're absolutely unsparing about your own behaviour, about your treatment of others, which is at times appalling, <laughs> about your addictions. But did it all seem perfectly normal when you were inside that bubble? Is it only with distance that you think, oh, blimey, that I now realise how it really was? Well, I think you become, you, you, it's like you're in suspended adolescent animation. And everybody around you, they're just like, keep them happy, just keep them happy. You know, that five-man monster that you've got, to, you've got to cart around the world, that you've got to coordinate their every movement, that they've got to be here on time, they've got to be there on time. And then when they get there, they've got to perform. And whatever it takes to make them happy. You know, and then you've got people who just literally do want to kiss your ass and make you happy. And then after a while, uh, there's a shape that begins to form around you. And that shape is, is the enablers. You know, and if people don't want to play the game, then they're kind of out. So by the time you've been doing it for a few years, then the, the people that you've chosen to surround you are very much the people that are agreeing with whatever your bad behaviour is. In retrospect, and I don't mean by this, would you prefer to be playing Dudley JBs your whole career, but would you have traded in a little bit of the commercial success for a life that was a little less fraught? Well, now I wouldn't because I'm very happy with the, where I am right now. And I'm, I'm a big believer in that idea that if you change one thing, it can send you off on another course altogether. I'm, I think looking at the experience as a whole, I'm, it's been fantastic. And what's more, it's still great today. You know, we're all kind of, we're all pretty healthy and we're all kind of thriving as human beings. We still get to play a lot. 80s pop has finally been reappraised in recent years. You can hear it not just in the charts, but in the hipster end of things these days as well. 
did it get an unfair deal from the cool people at the time? Well, the 70s were just so great. The idealism of the 70s, things changed. You know, th the creativity sort of broadened as we went into the 80s and art and fashion got involved. Music became more multimedia somehow. But the 70s set a very high bar, in my opinion. You don't sometimes, when you hear a record come on the radio and think, ah, oh, they're taking a bit of chic for the guitar and bass line. There's some big electro synth stabs there. There's some emotive singing. Hang on. We did that yeah. 30 years ago. Do you, do you get a little feeling of satisfaction there? Uh, well, you, well, yeah, you, it's nice to know that you have your place because it's, it's so important to me. Yeah, I'm such a music lover that to know that we've got a place in the, in the evolution is, is, is important. John Taylor there in the Pleasure Groove is in all good bookshops as we speak. Lucy Rose began her career as a backing vocalist with Bombay Bicycle Club, but she's since stepped out from a supporting role into the spotlight. Her debut album, Like I Used To, is out this month. Vogue magazine have called her one of indie music's breakout stars for 2012. But we don't trust what Vogue magazine have to say about indie music, so instead we sent Tim Jones to speak to her. She was just hot off the train from Africa Express's jaunt around the UK. Yeah, it was completely mad, I think. I knew it was going to be insane before I joined, but I really had no idea to the level of and the degree of madness it is. And um, it was such an amazing thing to be involved in and a really heartwarming experience. Because I left the tour just about when you joined, so what kind of things were you um, working on? Singing with Jack from Bombay Bicycle Club, because we yeah. sing Shuffle, and that turned into a pretty mad song as well. And then I did a song on mine called Scar and we got some trumpets on it in Bristol and it was really fun and, you know, the first day no one knew me and it's always a bit difficult, you know, and, and everyone's already made their friends and by the end of it, you know, I had just before I went on stage, I had African musicians coming up to me being like, can I play the bongo? And you're like, sure. And they just like <laughs> jump on stage and it's really fun. You don't really get a chance to pause on it as well, I noticed. It's like everywhere you stopped, you couldn't just sit down in your hotel room for a bit, you were just out Not at doing all. stuff, yeah. I found Which everyone... Every night would be so tired at the end of the show, but everyone would be so buzzing mm -hmm. from adrenaline and no one could sleep at right, all. Okay. And then suddenly there'd be a mad jam sesh down in the hotel lobby right. <laughs> for another three hours. And then straight after that, you went to festival. Things are kicking off for you at the moment. Does it feel like that? Um, the festival season's been just unbelievable and it's just got better and better as it's gone on. It was sad that festival was our last one now of the summer. And the crowds have just been really mad. Like yesterday was a full tent and and it was similar to Reading and Leeds and I just don't expect it. When I go on stage, I just expect there to be like honestly 20 people in the crowd. And then when I see a full tent and then I start the first song and people are singing along to it, it's the best feeling in the world and, and I'm definitely by far not the most confident person. So this festival season's made me feel a little bit better about everything and, and the album coming out and giving me some sort of hope for them. For okay. Um, so what is it about kind of Joni Mitchell, for instance, that draws you to it? Is it the lyrics as well as the music? The lyrics are, are so important to her song and, and after I listened to Blue, 
I watched that. It was like a three-hour documentary film on her. I, I was when I was working as a door girl on music nights, so just charging five pounds on the door. And I watched it in the morning. It was three hours, and just cried my eyes out and watched it again. So six hours of Joni Mitchell, and then went to my job and was just like couldn't believe it. And it was just about how you know her dedication to writing good music and how she was in love with this man and and she couldn't write any music and she broke her own heart pretty much to write songs and then wrote Blue and the label were like we can't release this it's it's too much you're giving everything of you away and she was like that's exactly what I want to do that's important and you know I've been given a chance and my mum wanted to do something she couldn't my grandma wanted to and 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 she never got the chance either and I've got this opportunity and I need to take it and it was just the most inspiring thing and then when I listened to the album it makes me feel a thousand times more things knowing what she went through to, to produce it for people to listen to and to make them feel things. Okay, and is that something you feel like you have to do as much as you can with your songs to kind of put as much kind of honesty in? A hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, I think people can tell if it's not. And if it means something to you every time you play it, I think the crowd know that it means something to you. That's the most powerful emotion of it all, you know. Who wants to go watch someone just sing a meaningless song about nothing that they care about is it difficult to sometimes get stuff out yeah definitely because it's like yeah it's it's not an easy thing i'm sure anyone would know that's why i called red face red face it has nothing to do with the song it's just i got a really red face every time (laughs) i played it and that's just how the song title came about it's always the way um songs like don't you worry i remember playing for the first time at an open mic and my parents were there and i was thinking this is really embarrassing I'm singing this song about something and they don't know anything about it and neither these people and I'm just about to say all these feelings that I have and I'm such a closed book in all other aspects of my life I think it's a real shock for my friends and family that I suddenly started doing this because they can never get anything out of me I fall asleep in front of the TV so I forget what I'm thinking Oh, don't you wanna know Is it any easier Oh, don't you wanna know Is it fine to close your eyes Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's surprising to me just because I think of how kind of driven from really young ages a lot of artists are so it's, it's quite surprising when you kind of say oh I just wandered down the street and picked up a guitar I suppose I was over the far last five years I've been pretty driven I think mm-hmm. um, a lot of it is just yeah it's just determination sometimes there's so many friends of mine who I've met over the years and they've stopped playing music and I used to think their bands are really great and it's just after being knocked down so many times it just isn't easy and the last five years has, has been the opposite of that. It feels like it's been nothing but an uphill battle, which I'm sure it is all the time. For most artists, it's just such a hard industry to get into. And I only got signed a few months ago, and I've been doing it five years, and it just seems to be happening quickly now because I got signed now, and now the album's coming out, but I've been working on this, it feels, for such a long time. Last question I was just going to ask, how did you come up with your blend of tea? Oh, the tea. The tea. <laughs> um, I don't know what happened, but I think I, I got a teapot for my birthday a while ago. 
I just started putting in an Earl Grey tea bag and maybe like two English breakfasts and drinking it like that and it was so delicious and I'm quite a phased person I was going on about it and every time someone came around I was like you've got to have this tea I was going mad about it and I made my manager try it and we had no CDs to sell at any of my gigs so he was like <laughs> let's make some tea because I was like what are we going to sell I'm doing these gigs and people want to buy stuff and so we made some tea and we went down like to a little tea factory, a lady called Trisha made a blend and and that was that. And it seems quite toy and things like that, but I think it's just funny. I think tea's an important thing and someone making you a cup of tea can really change your day. That's the future for new bands, I think, getting Definitely. to hot beverages. That's Lucy Rose. Her debut album, Like I Used To, is out on the 24th of September. And that wraps it up for this week's uh, Music Weekly. Thank you very much. It's good to be back, isn't it? Yep. Mm. But bubbling <laughs> over with enthusiasm. Yeah. Good to see. I'm sure the listeners feel exactly the same way. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, my thanks as ever to Kieran Yates. My special thanks to Errol Olkin for coming in. We'll see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Simon Hattonstone. I'm a Guardian journalist, and I occasionally write books that are not read by many people. Let me tell you about some of the great advice from those who really know how to do it top name authors that you can read in a new Guardian book called Write. It's brilliant. Funny, perverse, bonkers and wise. If it sounds like writing, then I rewrite, says Elmore Leonard. There's an Enright for despairing writers. Remember, the first 12 years are the worst. So, don't put off that dream of winning the Booker Prize any longer. Get inspired by our new Guardian book, Write. You can get yours for half price. £6.50 using promo code podcast. To order, visit guardian.co.uk slash bookshop anytime up to the end of October. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.